Good morning, everyone. First Sunday of Lent. Talk about a change of seasons. Uh, did you notice some changes this morning? Yep. yep. Okay. All right. Good. I got one yes. Uh, that's good. There's some liturgical shifts. There are some thematic shifts. Uh, as you'll notice, uh, which it'll take us some time to develop this habit, we're trying to enter in silence and contemplation, which is a different practice for us than kind of hobnobbing around grabbing coffee, which hey, I'm, not, I'm not against coffee, but uh, it's, it's a change. Uh, there are changes there liturgically and thematically, and those are to attune us to the new season, which we are in. Much can be said about entering Lent. I, I talked about that a lot on Ash Wednesday, so I don't want to speak a lot to that, but I do want to say just a little bit about the purpose of Lent. Think of your heart like a room, okay? One meant to house a very special guest. That guest is uh, the Holy Spirit, and your heart was designed to be his full-time residence, intended to be a, a good habitation for the Lord, a suitable one. So Lent is a time to clear away the clutter and the mess. I'm going to press this metaphor really far, so just bear with me, okay? It's spiritual house cleaning. That's what Lent is about. It's, it's to welcome the Lord yet again into our hearts to abide within us, wholly and fully. And even though it's a little campy in terms of how to describe it, spiritual house cleaning, um, it's not to say it's comfortable or easy. <laughs> Lent can be a very intense season. Uh, sometimes we're very content. We want to keep our house the way we want it, right? We want to, you know... Uh, we have no intention of getting rid of that nice vase that Aunt Thelma gave us. We want to keep it right where it is, if you follow the metaphor with me. But in Lent, we're trying to open our hands to the work of the Holy Spirit, trying to let go of the things that own us, trying to let go of the things that burden us, the things that weigh us down, the things that act actually inflict upon us self-harm. We're trying to let go of those things. Sin is a cancer, after all. The scriptures speak of them that way. So walking that road of confession and repentance and forgiveness is actually healing. Now, how many people think of Lent that way, that Lent would be healing? It is. <laughs> forgiveness is healing to us. Lent, a healing path? Absolutely. You better believe it. But initially, the experience of dying to the old man and the old woman, kind of letting go of our junk, might feel like death to us initially. Might feel like entering the desert. Might feel like entering the wilderness Enter Matthew 4, 1 through 11. This gospel reading, which you just heard, is always the first uh, reading in Lent. It's always the first gospel reading. The temptation of Jesus. It's, it's paramount. It's a seminal story, not just because it talks about fasting. Uh, our 40 days of Lent intentional mirror Jesus' journey into the wilderness. Okay, That's what those 40 days are about. Minus feast days, like today, if you do your math. Uh, in Lent, we seek to follow Jesus intentionally. If you, if you will, we seek to shadow him. Shadow him on his journey into the wilderness. Thus, you can hear that kind of serious and stern tone in our liturgy. Sobering. Jesus is preparing to do battle with the devil himself in our gospel reading. Since we're shadowing him on this particular journey, if we're going to follow him, it makes sense to feel the gravity of that and for us to spiritually kind of suit up ourselves in preparation. So Matthew 4, 1 through 11. You ready? It's a good story. Good story. First couple of verses set the stage for us. And I can't go past these things. There's a lot of symbolism. 
There's a lot of typologies. It's just sort of loaded and laden with all this stuff in the first two verses. I don't want us to miss it because it really will miss the meaning if we kind of uh, glance over this stuff and just get right to the temptations. This sets the stage. First two verses. Now, this follows right on the heels of Jesus's baptism, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This follows directly after Jesus' baptism. Not unlike Israel crossing the Red Sea, kind of their baptism before heading into the wilderness en route to the promised land. So as we encounter the temptation of Jesus, consider the apparent irony of what immediately preceded it. Think of the words Jesus just heard in his baptism. This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then the temptation of Christ follows says that Jesus was led by the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit. And you know where, but I'll get to that in a second. It sometimes feels, I think, more comfortable to speak of like trials, testing, temptations, as something that God, follow me here, allows, permits. Uh, and sometimes that's the case, right? That is true. But that also sounds a little too passive, a little a bit like divine happenstance. In Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 16, God speaks of actively using Israel's wilderness experience to, quote, find out what was in your heart. That's what it was about, whether or not you would keep my commandments. So Jesus is led by the Spirit. What does it mean for God to intentionally lead you directly into calamity? <laughs> you ever think about that? That's a harrowing thought. To deliberately allow you to be tested and tempted. Deliberately. It's not the pride. There's some places we end up because of our own foolishness, our own sin, whatever, right? That's not, that's not what this is about. <laughs> this is about being led deliberately someplace to be strengthened and purified in the sense of God taking us out there to take these good things that he's already doing in our life and to bring them to greater fruition, could testing and trials then actually be a sign of God's love for us? I don't want to necessarily own that one. <laughs> That's a little bit much. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then comes the temptation of Christ. And the Holy Spirit led Jesus. Led where? Into where? Wilderness. Yes, those lonely, desolate places. That's a place of scarcity. Not a lot of food and water out there, place of deprivation. Not a very safe place. It's a place many of the ancients feared. It was a refuge and a hiding place for bandits, outlaws. But biblically speaking, the wilderness represents a place of preparation. The wilderness represents preparation. A place of waiting on the Lord to see, where are you going to lead next, Lord? A place where we learn to trust in the Lord more deeply. It's a place of, place of growth. So not a bad Lenten connection there. And here our Lord, Jesus, is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And why? We're just told to be tempted or tested by the devil. Jesus is said uh, to have fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Again, I don't want to miss this. This is important. 40 is highly suggestive, highly symbolic of testing, trials, judgment. Think of Israel's wilderness wanderings. They were out there for how long? Forty years. Noah and the flood reigned for how many days and nights? Forty, et cetera, et cetera. So 40 is an Old Testament echo here. Very strong. Mainly intended, I think, to bring Israel to mind in their 40 years of wilderness wanderings. I think that's what it's supposed to bring about. And God's purpose for Israel during that time 
was purification and growth for them to emerge stronger, more faithful, more resolved to his purposes, more ready to enter the promised land. Now, Matthew tells us that Jesus was fasting during these 40 days. Now, again, another really strong echo. Fasting, as did Moses when he was on Mount Sinai. Moses, the giver of the law. As did Elijah, right? 1 Kings 19. The two people present at Jesus' transfiguration, which you heard about last week when Reed preached. Another echo, another echo. Fasting as they did. But Jesus is going to prove himself to be not just the giver of the law, Moses, not just the restorer of the law, Elijah, but the perfect fulfiller of the law. But his fasting for 40 days is meant to bring those two to mind. Now, lest we forget, fasting is it's worship. It's an act of worship. So that is what Jesus is doing out in the desert. He's in, the, in the desert, he is worshiping and communing with God. Okay? So we're not told what Jesus did specifically during those 40 days preceding the arrival of Satan on the scene, but based off what we know of Jesus, we can presume he was communing with his, hot, with his father. But our Lord was most certainly hungry, 40 days. Think about that. I think I've, most I've ever fasted for is maybe four days. Boy, howdy, times 10, can't even imagine it. He was hungry. That's divine understatement in the text. And it is that strategic moment that the devil found him. So, verse 3 and following. That sets the stage. Now we know what we've gotten ourselves into. I want to remind ourselves of something as we work, these, work our way through these temptations. Uh, what are the implications if Jesus succumbs? Think about that. What happens if he succumbs to any of these temptations? Anything. I think the results would have been catastrophic. I really don't know what would have happened. I'm not even sure what would have become of our world had Jesus given in. It boggles my mind. To say this is high stakes is, I cannot state that strongly enough. The stakes are so high. The stakes are so high. Now notice the strategic timing. Satan is very predictable in how he approaches us. The devil seems to know our soft spots. And he seems to know and seems to come, I should say, in our vulnerable moments. So, when we're hungry, desperate, frail, oh my, there he is. When we're in our most likely to believe that a desert mirage is actually, morality, is actually reality, guess what? There he is. He conspires to work with our self-deception and our denial. We must remember that Jesus is still subject to the frailty of being fully human. His body is very weak at this point. Very weak, but as you shall see, his spirit is strong because he has been communing with God the Father. First temptation. If you are the Son of God, and this is almost like Satan is saying, yeah, for the sake of argument, let's say this is true. The if is a taunt, and it is a direct challenge to the words that God the Father just spoke over Jesus' baptism, right? This is my son, my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased if you're the son of God. So if you hear this as a suggestive accusation, gold star, right on. And it's all about Jesus' identity and his mission and his relation to God the Father. This can't be overstated. From the outset, the devil is looking for a way to rupture the fellowship that the son of God has with God the Father. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy their communion. Think his strategy is ever the same with us? What do you think? 
Does he seek to destroy our communion with God and each other? Yep, better believe it. Temptation, pretty straightforward. This first one, straight out of the gate. Jesus, satisfy your immediate hunger. Do that. Tell these stones to, to become bread. 40 days, no food. Real temptation. Now, I don't know about you, but when you feel as if you're drowning, don't you want to grab onto the first life raft you see? <laughs> That's, Satan's offering quite a life raft here. And it is well within Jesus' power to perform this small, itty-bitty miracle. He could do this. But he recognizes the danger. So he responds in this way. Out of Deuteronomy 8.3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Interesting. That particular verse speaks of God providing manna to the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings. Manna picked up from the ground like stones. So God indeed met Israel's hunger, but he did it in his own way and in his own time. So Jesus shows us that obedience to the Lord comes before uh, self-gratification, if you will. Food is just a really poignant, concrete example here of that after 40 days without it. But the Son is going to be faithful and trust in God the Father. Now, uh, there's an emerging pattern here in this great battle that's going on between Jesus and the devil. Uh, as I said Briefly before, the overall strategy here seems to be, at least on the devil's end, at every turn, he's trying to divide the Son from the Father. He's trying to disrupt, uh, destroy their fellowship or communion, trying to provoke Jesus to disobedience. He's trying to provoke that. Notice, they're both adept at Scripture. We're going to see that. Satan throws Scripture back at Jesus. He uses out of context. He abuses it, and in doing so violates the redemptive story God is telling but the devil's tactic is always this. He employs just enough truth, just enough to make it tenable, to make it believable, to make us go, huh, cause us a little pause. All Jesus' rebukes and answers you will see come from Deuteronomy. I'll comment more on that later. But all you need to know, that is a book that is all about God's covenantal faithfulness. Okay? Remember the Lord your God. How many times do you hear that in Deuteronomy? A lot. Jesus pulls from Deuteronomy in answering Satan. Now, uh, no sense that Jesus really pauses to consider these offers that Satan throws out. He doesn't engage in dialogue or conversation with the devil. Doesn't get into it with evil. And there's a reason. You don't dabble with evil. You don't. It's dangerous. You use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, when, not if you meet a demon in your own wilderness, because you will or have, you strike him down with the Word of God. <laughs> That's how it works. You show the devil no mercy, for he will show you none. So, don't dabble evil, right? And as the temptations continue, this is just number one. We're about to go to number two. I want you to observe how they sort of increase in their intensity, okay? And how Satan tries these different tacks. If this doesn't work, he'll try this. Okay, no open door here. Okay, I'll try this. No open door here. Okay, I'll try this. So, several different tacks. He tries to wear Jesus down. Again, do you think that Satan... Same, similar tactics with us. One thing doesn't work. Does he try something else? He does with me. I don't know about y'all. Absolutely. Second temptation. So that's a pattern we see that is emerging here. Second temptation, verses 5 to 7, takes Jesus to the holy city, being Jerusalem, to a high place on the temple. And he again begins with that taunting and challenging if. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Use a scripture, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Devil has upped his game, okay? 
He quotes Psalm 91, a psalm which focuses on what it means, and I'm going to quote it, to live in the shelter of the Most High. Now think about this with me for a minute. Who would this apply to more than God's own son, Jesus? Crafty devil. Crafty, crafty, crafty. And the devil, again, appeals to something within Jesus' power to perform. Again, Jesus could do this easily, easily, easily. What's the temptation here exactly? Throw yourself off the temple. Uh, you'll be born up. You'll be saved. Some would say it's pride or it's fame. Um, picture this scene, if you will. Uh, think of the scads of people gathered sort of near and around the temple, right? It's a busy place. It is the central gathering place in the capital city of Jerusalem. Busy. So this would make for a really good show, wouldn't it? Really good show. This spectacular act would definitely improve Jesus' messianic cred. What a witness that would be, right? Always a temptation for us in the church. But this could be a great witness. Tempting, isn't it? Very tempting. Here's the rub. You don't walk in front of a moving car saying, Jesus, save me. <laughs> you don't do that. This is exactly what the devil is asking Jesus to do. And let me kind of dig into that. I think he's asking for the Son to test God the Father rather than to serve and to trust his Heavenly Father. Different. The subtext of this temptation, I think, is actually, Jesus, does God the Father really love you enough to save you? Does he really? And can't you hear the echoes from the Garden of Eden here with that conversation we heard in the Old Testament reading between Eve and the serpent? Did God really say, right? It is just, there's like a poisonous accusation mixed in with a question. Here's how Jesus responds. The second temptation. He, he pulls from Deuteronomy 6, 16. Again, it is written, don't put your Lord, the Lord your God, to the test. He again pulls from the story of Israel's wilderness wanderings. How about that? More specifically, Exodus 17. I'll tell you a little bit briefly about that. This is where Israel demanded a sign of water to be given to them. And Moses, remember this, he says, why do you test the Lord? And Moses calls the place Masa and Meribah, which means like quarreling and testing, names it that. It is written, don't put God to the test. So the devil is questioning God's trustworthiness and his fidelity, and Jesus shuts it down. He remains a faithful, obedient son to God the Father. Third temptation, okay? Most outlandish, probably the most intense of all. Verses 8 through 11. Takes Jesus to an unspecified, very high mountain. They uh, look out over the land, beholding all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Key word, glory. Uh, as you learned last week from Reed, mountains were almost always these places of worship. They often symbolized that in the ancient Near East. They're either this place where you encounter the glory of God or the foul sins of cultic activity. They're called the high places. The devil shows his hand here. He shows his hand. Not a subtle, subtle temptation. Jesus, I want your worship and I want your devotion. Give me your allegiance. What? happens if Jesus fails here. Again, he's done two out of three. That's a good batting average in human terms. What if he fails here? What happens? I think the world devolves into utter chaos. Now, one thing we have to say about this temptation, the devil does have some authority, does he not? He's limited, 
But he actually can make some of these promises. These aren't false. He is called, in our scriptures, the ruler of the world. Okay? You'll find it in John. You'll find it in 2 Corinthians. You'll find it in Ephesians and 1 John Revelation. The devil does possess some power in this present age. But he's still on a short leash of God's sovereignty. One Puritan author puts it this way. He may be the devil, but he's God's devil. Okay? Get that? But you hear that some of the devil's offer is real. You need to hear that. This is actual power. This is actual worldly glory. Otherwise, this isn't much of a temptation at all. Brash, bold gamble. I think it's a desperate last-ditch effort on the devil's part. The temptation here, uh, power and glory, <laughs> right? Greed and ambition intertwined. Jesus is offering Jesus the right to reign and rule. How pitifully ironic is that? But he does. He gives them, he tries to tempt him with reign and rule, power and glory. You're the Messiah, right? Hey, isn't this what you came to do, to rule and to reign? Following me does have some real perks. You can have it right now. Don't have to wait for it. You don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to do all that. Satan is offering Jesus a shortcut to glory. And it's only earthly glory at that. Big deal. But Jesus came to serve, not to exalt himself. He came to glorify and to obey his Father. So he rebukes Satan really strongly. Deuteronomy 6.13, Be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God. Serve him, him alone. This is a thundering command. He just can't bear the heresy of this. Heresy being this. Satan offered Jesus the kingdom, but without the cross. That don't work, folks. Shortcut. Again, he's trying to sever or disrupt that relationship, that communion between God the Father and God the Son. It was the plan of God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit to go to the cross to save us. That, friends, is true glory, which the devil cannot offer. Can't. Jesus passes with flying colors. The devil retreats the time being, and angels come and minister to Jesus. Now, for those of you note-takers, did you happen to notice that every one of Jesus' response to the devil, they came from Deuteronomy 6 through 8? That's actually significant. Let me tell you why. Uh, those passages are Moses' address to Israel before entering the Promised Land, where he reminds them of those 40 years of wilderness wanderings. This is how they were prepared to enter the promised land. Okay? He's reminding them, you were educated by the Lord. You were disciplined by the Lord. You learned to trust and obey in the Lord. That's what those 40 years were about. My point here, Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. He completes and fulfills what they could not and did not. So this story, on a very deep level, is about Jesus as the true Israel. Jesus as the Son of God, fulfilling God's redemptive purposes. Having been sent into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is tested, allowed to be, by God the Father, and he proves himself to be, again, the true obedient Son of God, another full Trinitarian effort on God's part. So, it's a big story. Big story. Epic story. What might the Lord be teaching us here? Let me give you four suggestions of what I think. So, uh, first part, it's not obvious. Even Jesus was tempted and tested. 
but my second question, my question that is, but what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Even Jesus was tested. Why? Fair? Jesus didn't have to subject, subject himself to Satan or to this testing. Think about that. He could have commanded otherwise. He could have opted out at any time. He, he didn't have to allow Satan to sift him. He, he didn't have to take that journey. He could have opted out. That is staggering. Again, that what if happens if Jesus doesn't do these things? What if he blows it? What if he just, guys, I'm out. It's staggering to think of the implications there. And he did it without sin. I think he did it because he had to take the path, the path, excuse me, others had taken and failed, Israel, in order that he might cut a new trail, one that we could follow upon. Why? So that we could follow. That's why Jesus did this, so that we could follow on that trail. Okay, that's the first thing. Why was Jesus tempted and tested? What does that mean? So that we could follow, so we could follow along behind him. Second piece, what Lord, I think, might be teaching us through this passage. And this is a hard one. I, I feel like I learn and relearn this. Temptations and testing, guess what? They are preparation for deeper ministry. They are. They're like the required reading. Temptations and testing are preparation for deeper ministry. In other words, uh, they aren't a diversion or a distraction, which is a bummer because I'd rather view them that way. <laughs> I'd rather view them that way. They may feel like it, but they're not a diversion or a distraction. Jesus' ministry begins in earnest after this, after the testing, after the temptations. The wilderness, the desert, that's the proving ground. Now, humanly speaking, I don't know about you, what should follow is baptism. Well, I'm like, let's get to ministry, man. Let's get on with it. Let's get rock and roll. Here, we're ready to go. That's not the order the Lord does it in. Um, my seminary journey began in 1999. I wasn't ordained until 2011. That was a long journey. Uh, Twelve long, uh, often painful, uh, years of further preparation. I wasn't ready to be a priest when I graduated in, in uh, 2003. I wasn't ready. And God, in his grace, uh, loved me enough to grow me up and not to inflict me upon a body of believers uh, too soon. But... Did I really go into seminary in 99 going, you know, I'd really like to be ordained by 2011. That sounds awesome. No. No. It was 12 long years, and a lot of life happened in there. My point. Oh, that we would all lean into the temptations and testing that God ordains. If we would just lean into those. Ready to, I mean, we all get ahead of God, don't we? Right? Man, I'm ready to do ministry now. I'm ready to do X right now. I'm ready to go. Fire, aim, ready syndrome. And yet God knows the preparation that we need. He knows that. So that second piece, temptations and testing, they're preparation for deeper ministry. And I mean that for all of us. I'm not talking about just ordained people. That's for all y'all, okay? Deeper ministry. Third piece, during Lent, and perhaps some of you have experienced this already, expect opposition from your three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Expect it. Count on it. Expect it. During Lent, expect opposition from our three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Look, I've had wonderful conversations leading up to Lent with some of you, and I've heard your prayers, and I think God is up to some good things here at King of Kings. I'm really, I don't know if it's weird to say I'm giddy about Lent. I'm a little giddy about Lent. I'm going to say it. No shame. Uh, because of what God is doing. I'm excited that we're in this journey together as a church. So, 
But the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're going to be right there to squash that. So expect the siren call of the world beckoning you away from the ways of the cross. You don't need to do that glory thing. You don't have to do the way of the cross. Expect it. The world's going to call at you. Expect pushback from your own flesh. Absolutely. And yes, expect the devil to try to spoil the good things that are happening in your and our midst. The ever-quotable Luther says, where God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. He's always there. If something good's happening, he's right there to try to muck it up. So expect all these things and spiritually suit up during Lent, right? To battle the world of flesh and the devil. Get lean and mean. Strong, disciplined like an athlete in training. So during Lent, expect opposition from our three enemies, world, flesh, devil. Lastly, and I can't stress this enough, when the Spirit leads us into our own wildernesses, which he will, or has, uh, we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear. Um, There's no place that you or I can go that Jesus hasn't been. I I find that profoundly comfortable. Comforting, that's a better way to put it. Comforting. Jesus is redeeming the story of Israel's wilderness wanderings. He rebukes Satan uh, with those specific Deuteronomy passages for a reason. Jesus braved the wilderness And he walked into the places where Israel failed. So there's nowhere that we can go. There's nowhere that you and I can go where Jesus hasn't been already, dot, 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 on our behalf. So friends, brothers, sisters, uh, take comfort in that. Have no fear. In fact, I'd encourage you to be bold in that. Be bold because of that. So when the Spirit leads us into our own wilderness, which he will, have no fear. Be bold. Let's pray.